and turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. This morning we'll be looking at the betrayal of Christ. The betrayal of Christ. And as we begin this morning, allow me to give you an American history lesson this morning. Since this is my area of study and instruction as a teacher, I hope you won't mind a little history lesson from time to time, especially since some of you probably didn't listen in your history classes, so now's the time to listen up. In 1780, during some of the most difficult days of our nation's fight for independence from Great Britain, the military's supplies seemed to be drained and financial resources dried up and morale was at an all-time low. General Washington labored to bolster the troops' hearts for further uh, uh, deprivation and fighting the war, while several congressmen feverishly labored to raise the necessary funding for the war. In May, Charleston, South Carolina, fell to the British Army with the loss of including 5,000 American regulars at prisoners of war along with valuable equipment. In less than three months, the balance of South Carolina fell into British control as well as most of Georgia. But it was not just in the southern regions that looked kind of dismal at that point. But a decorated and esteemed American general betrayed his commanding general, his country, and the fight for independence by attempting to give the fort at West Point, New York, and thus control of the Hudson River to the British. One historian called it a treasonous act so monstrous that it may have provoked even more widespread despair than that aroused by the military defeats in the South. And the same traitorous American general even led British troops against Richmond, Virginia, succeeding in destroying much of that city and its value for continuing the war. And by now, most of you who did listen in your history classes know who I'm talking about. Benedict Arnold. Benedict Arnold is synonymous in American history with a betrayer or traitor. People have been called, oh, you're a Benedict Arnold. Once adored by his country, Benedict Arnold's name has gone down in our history as the lowest of low in character and in trust. And while lots of parents have named their children after George Washington, they've named him after Patrick Henry, or some other exemplary American, I dare say not very many parents have named their child Benedict Arnold. Another person who shares an even more reprehensible betrayal, his name is Judas Iscariot. He represents the worst page in human history when a man sold the Son of God for the price of a slave. Any one of us would cringe at the thought of being called Judas. If someone called you Judas, you'd say, not me. That's not my name. That doesn't go with my character. 
because it's a name that describes one without values, without loyalty, without integrity, and consumed with pursuing one's own ambitions. And yet, there is a danger of a little bit of Judas lurking in each one of our hearts this morning. The nature of man is so twisted, so turned upon self and against God, that what Judas did some 2,000 years ago has been repeated in some measure throughout history. The heart of the betrayer is evident in one who turns against Christ in favor of self. Can that happen to you or me? I want us to consider the scene of betrayal and its message to us this morning. Look at Matthew 26, beginning in verse 14, and we'll read our text here. You follow along in your copy of God's Word as I read, beginning in verse 14. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said unto them, What will you give me? And I will deliver him unto you. And they coveted with him for thirty pieces of silver. And from that time he sought opportunity to betray him. Now the first day of the feast of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying unto him, Where without that we prepare for thee to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to such a man, and say to him, The master saith, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at thy house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had appointed them, and they made ready the Passover. Now when the even was come, he sat down with the twelve. And as they did eat, he said, Verily I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. And they were exceeding sorrowful, and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, He that dippeth his hand with me in the dish, the name shall betray me. The same shall betray me. The Son of Man goeth as it is written of him, that woe unto the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It hath been good for that man if he had not been born. Then Judas, which betrayeth him, betrayed him, answered and said, Master, is it I? He said unto him, Thou hast said. This morning we want to first of all look at the characteristics of a betrayer. What does a betrayer look like? How does he go about his traitorous uh, tra- uh, acts? The scene in our text follows the remarkable story of Mary of Bethany anointing Jesus Christ for his burial. We looked at that last Lord's Day. Breaking the alabaster flask of costly spikenard, she poured it on his head, releasing its fragrance throughout the house, alerting all the impending uh, of the uh, pending death of Christ. But with her act of worship came an indignant reaction, instigated by none other than Judas Iscariot. The costly perfume, worth a year's wages, became the subject of talk among the disciples, and some, quite honestly, thought it might have been better to provide the funds to the poor. And yet, Judas had no such generosity in his heart. John tells us that Judas had no concern for the poor, rather he was a thief. And he had the bag, and he bare what was put therein. In other words, he was dishonest. 
He was a dishonest treasurer and would use the money for himself. Upon the conclusion of this anointing of Jesus for burial, our text follows with the intentions of Judas to betray Christ. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went unto the chief priests. And his mission here is very clear. He would hand Jesus over to the religious authorities, away from the crowds, so that he could be put to death in exchange for silver. Now, still hurting over Jesus' rebuke for his upbraiding Mary's act of worship, Judas decides, you know, he's not going to be left empty-handed. He'd do a little bargaining for his own good. It's in that act we're able to analyze the heart of the betrayer in order to evaluate our own hearts in regard to Christ. Number one, first of all, a betrayer forsakes privileges. You know, Judas had so much. Now, I don't mean he had financial wealth, since the New Testament offers no portfolio for Judas, okay? We don't have that here. Matthew expresses it in four words. It says, one of the twelve. You think, that doesn't, that's not much there. One of twelve. Well, that's pretty significant. One of the twelve. And he is the one who besought or sought to betray Jesus Christ. He was one with great privileges, singled out with 11 others who walked three years beside Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But as someone has said, great privileges do not make a heart right with God. Great privileges do not make a heart great with, right with God. You know, someone may enjoy some great privileges and make some great have a great religious profession, and yet their heart all the time may not be right with God. Here's a man that personally knew Jesus Christ. He was considered one of the Lord's closest friends and associates. His companions, the rest of the twelve, became the men upon whom the foundation of the church rests throughout the ages. For three years, Judas spent time watching Jesus Christ, listening to his teaching, seeing the tenderness of his compassion and his love, and breathing the brilliant air of his presence. He saw water turned into wine. He saw the blind receiving sight. He saw the lame made to walk. He saw the deaf ears open, mute tongues loosed, and demon eyes delivered, and even the dead raised. He was present when Jesus called forth Lazarus from the grave. He saw lepers immediately healed of that flesh-rotting disease. He helped to pass out the loaves and the fish when Jesus fed the multitudes. He witnessed Jesus walking on the water, calming the wind and the waves by his command. He heard the demons confessing Jesus Christ to be the Son of God. Judas was not a silent observer. He joined in praising Jesus and obeying Him and and feeling the excitement and the awe of Christ's presence. He participated in ministry along with the rest of His disciples. Everything that He did appeared to be the loyal devotion of a dedicated disciple, so much so that the rest of the disciples felt confidence with Judas, and they said, here, you take care of the money. 
you usually want to put some your trust in someone to take care of the money that you really trust. And it appeared that Judas was a trustworthy person. And yet in spite of all these many privileges, Judas not only turned from Christ, but even willingly sold him for 30 pieces of silver, about a year's wages, or excuse me, that's not a year's wage, that's a month's wages for uh, an average worker. Even a graceless person might thrilled to be part of such an experience for being around Jesus Christ. But you know what? Thrill only goes skin deep. You know, we all be thrilled about something. You can have a thrilling ride at the amusement park. And, and it's over. You can have, you can have a thrill of a, a wonderful meal. Fails to penetrate, though, the recesses of the heart, the dark caverns of selfishness that go along with so readily with the human nature. We can be thrilled for a moment or two of something, but listen, the stark reality is here, he had great privileges. He had great opportunities. And any one of us might join in the worship of Jesus Christ and we might enjoy the singing of Christian hymns and we might participate in the activities of our church and we may give the appearance of being Christian and yet we could betray Jesus Christ. I wonder this morning, are there some among us that are a part of the company of Christians sitting regularly under the ministry of God's Word enjoying the relationships of a loving church and yet at the chance moment you would forgo all of that in pursuit of your sin. You say, Pastor, what are you doing? You trying to put me in the camp with Judas? The most despised person in all of history? It's possible. Like Judas, you've had great privileges of hearing the gospel. You've seen its fruit, but you're so intent some, uh, uh, perhaps on your sin that you would betray Jesus Christ, the Son of God, for a paltry sum. And the spirit of betrayal is not limited to Judas Iscariot or Benedict Arnold. It lurks in the mind and the heart that has failed to go to the cross and repentance and death to sin. The character of a betrayer is one who forsakes privileges. Secondly, the character of a betrayer is one who focuses on self. Now, the question defies imagination. It says here, And said unto them, What will you give me, and I will deliver him unto you? What a, an amazing question. Jesus is saying, What are you willing to give me, that I myself should hand him over to you? Wow, that's proud. That's Arrogant, that's haughty. Judas considered himself in control of his life. He was his own man. No longer would he take orders from Jesus Christ or bend to his commands. No longer would he go along with the disciples as obedient followers. Everything would be different now. It was now all about Judas and what Judas wanted and what satisfied Judas. As far as Judas was concerned, it's all about me. 
As I've used this term earlier today already, and sometimes in the recent past, it's called being me-centric. Everything revolves around me. That's Judas, but that's also the character of a betrayer. Judas was not betraying Christ for nothing. In all likelihood, he was disgusted that Jesus failed to gather the multitudes around him as a mighty army to conquer the Roman occupation in Palestine. And he thought of the money, the titles, the endowments, and the position he would hold. But Jesus continued all this talk about his kingdom not being of this world. And yet in Judas' mind, what could be more important than the present moment? What could be better than grabbing all you can get from life? You go around once in life, get all you can get. That was his attitude. Eternity, evidently, meant nothing to him. And so blinded by the present moment was Judas willingly uh, willingly forfeited eternity to hear a little more jingle in his money bag. It says here, and they covenanted with him for 30 pieces of silver. That's all it took to turn his mind and his heart away from Jesus Christ. Now, lest you think we're talking about a king's ransom here, again, 30 pieces of silver wasn't very much. It was the same price that the law commanded a man to pay if his ox gored to death another man's slave. It amounted to about a month's wages. And so what was Jesus Christ, the Son of God, valued to Judas Iscariot? They coveted with him for 30 pieces of silver. The question we must ask is not what value Judas placed upon Jesus Christ. Instead of the question should be what value is Jesus Christ to you and me this morning? What is he worth in your estimation? You might say, well, that's hard to figure. I'm not sure I could give you an amount. May I suggest to you how to make that evaluation? Take one good look at your life. Where are your affections? What are you devoted to? What moves you? What thrills you? What leaves you filled with awe? What do you think about when you're not pressed by work or school? What do you want to pursue more than anything else? The answer is not Jesus Christ. Then take the sum of all of those things and add them up, and that's what you would gladly receive in turn for Jesus Christ. You could deliver over the Son of God to the hands of those wanting to destroy Him if you could but reach the elusive desires of your heart. You're focused on self. Thirdly, the characteristic of a betrayer is one who follows vain ambitions. The rest of the picture of Judah's life is found here in verse 16. And from that time he sought opportunity to betray Him. Imagine spending one's time seeking just the right opportunity to hand Jesus over to his enemies. And betrayers are so self-absorbed and so turned against Christ that they will set their faces like a flint toward the one, uh, the most, uh, uh, most important end in their life. It matters not to them of all that they have been privileged to hear, 
or what part concerning Jesus Christ in the gospel has had. What matters to the betrayer is self and the idols of his heart. In his estimation, the universe revolves around that 18-inch circle where they stand. Nothing else matters. So it's no wonder that they glibly pursue whatever sins their minds conceive. For Judas, it was greed. Though he had given up much to follow Jesus for three years, he had not given up his covetousness. Judas doesn't stand alone. You look at Joseph's brothers in the book of Genesis. They sold him into slavery. Samson betrayed to the Philistines by Delilah for money. Elisha's servant Gehazi deceived, uh, deceiving Naaman the Syrian for wealth. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira attempting to dupe the church. Why? All for money. And no wonder Paul warned, for the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. We may love money without having it, just as we may have money without loving it. It is an evil that works very deceitfully. It carries us captive before we are aware of our change. You think a year or two years before this time, maybe even six months before this time, Judas thought he would betray Jesus Christ? I kind of doubt that he thought his pursuit of greed would take him that far. Rather than being loyally devoted to Christ, he pretended to play the role of a disciple while pursuing his real love for money. But he likely did not think that it would cost him so dearly, just as most anyone in the pursuit of idols of the heart would think. Consider your own heart's love and pursuits. Are you intent on loving and following Christ? Have you recognized that even your desires must be put to death at the cross in faithful submission to Jesus Christ? The characteristics of a betrayer. Secondly, notice with me the steadfastness of the Savior. Though it seemed all about him to be crumbling, Jesus Christ remained steadily focused on the mission before him, and that was bearing our judgment before God at the cross. He had a destiny with the cross. Luke tells us that two disciples, Peter and John, took on the job of preparing for the Passover, here they say they ask, where wilt thou that we prepare for thee to eat the Passover? That not only involved locating a suitable room, but also taking the Passover lamb to the temple between 3 o'clock and 5 p.m. to have it slaughtered and the blood splashed at the base of the altar, roasting the lamb, securing the unleavened bread, preparing the cups of wine, bitter herbs, and the mixture of fruit that would be part of the meal. Passover had been celebrated for hundreds of years in commemoration of God's deliverance of Israel from slavery in Egypt and sparing the firstborn of man and beast from the passing of the death angel. With a combination of eating and drinking and singing and telling the story of the original Passover, the Jewish families were brought back to God's gracious intervention in their lives 
and the price borne by the Passover lamb that spared them judgment with Egypt. You notice here in giving the instructions to the disciples, he uses the phrase, my time is at hand. They were to tell this man carrying a water jar on behalf of the master that his time was at hand. Now that was a euphemism for death. Jesus Christ did not budge from his destiny of the cross. He understood the significance of this Passover as the last one under the old covenant. And now our Christ, our Passover, would be offered as a mediator of the new covenant. And he would become our Passover sacrifice. And the divine purpose would be fulfilled in redeeming God's elect through Christ's death on the cross. So intent was our Lord in the fulfillment of this Passover through his death on behalf of sinners that he carefully guarded the location where he would celebrate the Passover. Sent two disciples into the city to such a man, that is, one that would not be named, lest Judas would have time to give the information to the chief priests. Our Lord would not allow Judas to spoil the institution of a new covenant meal. That new covenant meal is called the Lord's Supper. And that he would establish for his church to celebrate in remembrance of him. Think about what was taking place here. Jesus knew that Judas Iscariot was going to betray him. He knew that the mock arrest and trial would take place. He knew that the cross lay before him, but there was no panic in his voice or his actions. There's no hesitation in his mission. The agony of being separated from the Father, bearing the weight of our sin, receiving in his own person the infinite wrath of the Holy God, and even being abandoned by his friends, did nothing to turn Christ away. Judas Iscariot turned away from Christ in pursuit of his own ambitions and his greed. Jesus Christ remained determined in his redemptive mission to which the Father had entrusted to him. And that same steadfast determination and dependability still characterizes Jesus Christ today. He does not waver in his love for you and me. He does not falter in supplying grace when the pressures begin to to mount up in our lives. He says, my time is at hand. And he passed along to men who would provide the place the man who would provide the place for the Passover feast and his death was imminent. And yet even knowing this, he would still give assurance, I will keep the Passover at thy house with my disciples. He had a destiny with, with the cross. He had determined fulfillment. And he was ready to do what God's will was for his life. Thirdly, the declarations of the Son. Peter and John had made the preparations for the Passover. The Passover lamb now lay at the foot of the brazen altar. Its flesh roasted for the meal along with the other foods that symbolized the bitterness of the slavery into Egypt and God's deliverance. You notice, first of all, a pronouncement about the heart. 
At some point in the meal, perhaps after singing a great uh, psalm, like from Psalm 113 to 118, the Hallel uh, Psalms, Jesus said, Verily I say unto you that one of you shall betray me. Maybe following the singing of Psalm 115, where the folly of idolatry is exposed. And perhaps it was after Psalm 118 and those messianic words, the stone which the builders refuse has become the headstone of the corner. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. The words pierced their hearts and they were exceedingly sorrowful and they began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? And though each disciple was a potential betrayer, none thought it possible that he could do such a wicked thing. Lord, is it I? Those words are very emphatic here, and it expects the answer of, why, no, of course it's not you. Suspicion probably arose. Each man kind of looked about this gathering as they reclined at this low table, and, oh, it's not me, is it him? Who is it? And to add further shock to this, Jesus warns, He that dippeth his hands with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. And to gather at a meal with others indicates friendship and loyalty. This particular feast served as a virtual family gathering. They would dip their bread in a common bowl of crushed fruit or sauce or vinegar. And such practice demonstrated friendship. And yet the betrayer is willing to break all bonds in favor of his sin. It was William Tyndale who evaded the Roman church authorities and Henry VIII's officers for 11 years when he translated the Bible into English. This was a pre-King James Bible. But a man that had befriended him often joined Tyndale for meals and discussing his work while pretending to admire his accomplishments betrayed him. Henry Phillips spent several months working to gain the trust of Tyndale and his, and his benefactor. He waited until the benefactor was away on business. He arranged a meal with Tyndale and he even borrowed money from Tyndale under the pretense that he had lost his, his uh, uh, purse and would repay him shortly. And as they left the meal and wound uh, through the narrow passages in Antwerp, Philip stepped back to allow Tyndale to pass in front of him through a narrow opening. And at just that moment, as Tyndale stepped forward, guards seized him while the much taller Phillips pointed to Tyndale as the one. He's the one to arrest. William Tyndale, a servant of Jesus Christ, knew that he was to be betrayed by a friend. Much like Judas, Henry Phillips found no satisfaction in betraying the godly William Tyndale. He spent the balance of his life running from authorities himself, living as a prisoner and a destitute man, and who eventually, according to Fox's Book of Martyrs, was consumed at last with lice. Jesus even mercifully warned Judas that he was the betrayer. Then Judas, which betrayed him, answered and said, Master, is it I? He said unto him, Thou hast said. Not thinking that he was a suspect, Judas expected a negative answer to this question. But the Lord's emphatic answer offered the last warning. Thou hast said. 
Could the Son of God have stopped Judas Iscariot? Certainly. One that could stop the violent winds and the waves could have stopped Judas. But so intent was Christ on his divine mission and so conscious of the divine plan of redemption coming to fruition, he only predicted the betrayal, even warning the already hardened heart of Judas Iscariot. Could it have been that general warning for all of his disciples would serve to warn them of the weakness and the evil that lurked in their own hearts? Perhaps as well, Jesus warned all of them, uh, predicting the betrayal so that the disciples would later understand that this came according to God's eternal decree. Though Judas meant it for evil, God meant it for good. And so we come to a prophecy concerning redemption here. Here's an amazing collision of the worst in man aimed for the destruction of the Savior, and yet the certainty of all that was according to God's plan. Verse 24 says, The Son of Man goeth as it is written of him. What was happening to Christ, even in the betrayal, following the eternal decrees of God for our salvation? Was Judas guilty? Was Judas wrong? Absolutely he was wrong. And forever he pays for his wickedness. Yet this happened according to God's plan. Psalm 41 and verse 9 prophesied it. Yea, mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat my bread of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. Jesus quoted those words in John 13, 18 to show that his betrayal at the hands of Judas came according to God's decree, according to God's plan. And so we have a proclamation of judgment. Yet Judas faced the certainty of divine judgment Again in verse 24 it says, But woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It had been good for that man if he had never been born, or had not been born. Judas continues to pay for betraying the Son of God. It will never end. And what of others that betray Jesus Christ? What of those perhaps, and even among us this morning here, which have had great privileges, have heard much of Christ, experienced much of His love, and yet have turned against Him. Dare any of us think that such a betrayal would go without the fiercest judgment? Now, no one wants to be called a Judas this morning as we close. Yet apart from the grace of God, the same treachery lurks in our own hearts to turn against Christ. Could we possibly possess the same characteristics this morning as Judas? Are we forsaking our privileges? Are we focused too much on ourselves? Are we me-centric? Are we following vain ambitions? Listen, the Lord Jesus Christ steadfastly followed his plan to go to the cross and completely fulfill his Father's will concerning our salvation, but not only that our faith, not only that our faithfulness to him, do you say you know Jesus Christ, but you're not willing to follow and obey him? And the declarations Jesus made in our text are not just for those who were with him at the time. It's a matter of the heart then, and it's a matter of the heart this morning. 
It's not just coming to church and going through the motions of religion, but it's a heart relationship with Jesus Christ. And what Jesus said would come to pass did come to pass. And what the scriptures say concerning our future are true and faithful as well. When we live for self, we are betraying the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're not any better than Judas. Let's fear to trust the desires of our hearts unless those desires have been sanctified at the cross. Let's be conscious that no good thing resides in our flesh. Our only good is Christ the Lord, crucified on our behalf, raised from the dead, and now dwelling in the hearts of all those who've turned to him in faith. Have you turned to him in faith? And if so, are you living for him? Let's pray.